What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host, Ken Milam and John Swan, as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. Welcome, everybody, to your last episode of March. Spring is quickly approaching. Um, oh, actually, spring's already here. Spring happened in March. <laughs> but seasonally yeah. wise, mm-hmm. yeah, seasonally wise, hopefully everybody is starting to feel like it is spring or that spring is at least getting close. Hopefully the the northern states are starting to get away from all of the cold and the snow and, and everything that keeps coming with that. And you can start having some of these visions of beekeeping and and all of that that it entails coming forward for the spring. For us, uh, finally, we're starting to have flowers blooming again. And oddly enough, our our little delay might kind of put us on track with, uh, you know, the rest of the country. <laughs> so they're coming out of, out of winter and coming into spring and their flowers are going to be starting. And ours got set back by about two to three weeks due to that that Arctic blast that we had for several days in a row. So fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, definitely the blue bonnets are coming out pretty strong, seeing a few Indian paintbrushes, uh, and some little yellow flowers. I don't know what the yellow flowers are, but I'm sure it's got something on them for bees, but, uh, we got a quick shot in the arm with, uh, start bill and the Nesbit flowers. So yeah, we're, ours are already putting up stuff. Then they oh, yes, take- your your little uh the, the little purple flower that you were talking about. Yep. Um yep. yeah, that is that is a stork's bill is the common name for it because of the weird seed pod that it makes after yep. it blooms. And yeah, and that when we were having that discussion, I kept saying, well, you know, the the little purple flowers that are around here are the henbit and in bit is a trumpet looking flower and you were like no no this is wide open yeah we were talking about two completely separate things so you were talking about hornsbill and i was talking about a uh, hen bit we got both of them here but uh there was and what's funny about that stork's bill as soon as you mow it down just a few days they're back up and blooming again yeah so uh it's uh my wife mowed them the other day and they're already back up and blooming and the bees are all over them again. That's kind of like your pigweed in the fall. Yep. You go through and you mow that down and like a day or two later, it's already full of blooms again. Yep. Same thing. The blue bonnets are, well, they're not thick, but we've got a lot of blue bonnets. It's not like it would be if it was a regular year without that cold spell. Uh, and also we're in that drought and it's kind of set them back too, but, uh, blue bonnets, all we get is, pro, uh, pollen anyway but max says dad i gotta check out something i said what do you want to check out well i'm gonna put just a a little bit of pollen out the ultra b and see if they're wanting it just to see now to be come by it so yeah. they are getting all the pollen they need from flowers right now yeah and that's that's the goal that's obviously what we want them to do is to have their own natural food source and be getting it from that not happen to get it from a artificially created source because the 
The pollen substitute is derived from typically, uh, there's two primary sources usually. There's either corn or soy. And neither of those are anything that the bee would normally be eating. Um, they yeah. look for that in emergency type situations when there's not flowers out there blooming. So it is good that they, they don't feel the need for that and they can get out there and get their natural pollen, which then helps the colonies grow. Um, I've got something for you. How many, what's the percentage of protein natural pollen has? What's, what's the, what's the percentage of protein? Is it like 15%, 16%? What does a bee need? Because on deer, you want right now, you're wanting to feed a 16% protein. And here before long, you'll jump up to 20% because uh, the does will start getting ready to have their fawns. So I don't know, I just I was just thinking out loud. Well, yeah. So the pollen substitute that you use is mm -hmm. Ultra B, and Ultra B is 65% crude protein. Mm -hmm. So it is a, it's a high protein source um, when they go through protein. and use that. So, but then like the protein percent of natural pollen is going to be different because each of the pollens can vary dramatically. So oh, natural yeah. pollen, yeah. some things, you know, like we talk about, you hear me talk about how like dandelions are uh, very crucial in the spring because a lot of times it's the only flower out there and it provides both pollen and nectar at a very crucial time for the bees but dandelion pollen is a kind of a subpar pollen that is lacking in some of the key amino acids that they need or at least the amounts of those amino acids that it provides but natural pollens can range anywhere from as low as 2.5 percent all the way up to 61 percent so there's a very large swath of uh variances out there and that's why okay. having not a monocrop or a mono food source but having a plethora of all kinds of different sources of pollen is how the bees then are able to kind of mitigate what they need because they can shift their resources to go and pull pollen of a higher quality or pollen that has more of this amino acid versus that amino acid and that's how they balance everything out so if they only had one thing and that one thing was you know only 20% on your crude protein mm -hmm. and lacking in amino acid type one, you know, I'm not, that's not a thing, but mm -hmm. then it, then as they fed on that, they would become deficient in both the quality of the pollen protein percent wise, as well as that lacking of that one amino acid. And that can then set a colony on a, a different course because that one amino acid may be crucial for, say, their immune system. Well, now they've got a weakened immune system. So it's it's really kind of interesting, but that's why you need the wildflowers and you need, you know, a huge variety of stuff out there for them. I know that you got me to use in, uh, well, what's the uh, powder that you put in your pollen when you do it in fall? Pea. The white stuff? Yeah. Uh, that is a probiotic is what that is. Yeah. Right. And so it goes through because, again, in nature, you're going to have naturally occurring microorganisms that are on your pollen and the bees desperately need that because some of it is going to provide different things for their body, help them actually break apart some of these amino acids and other protein uh, strains, chains. Mm -hmm. And as they break them apart, it creates new things. So that's how you can get like vitamin B12 kind of thing is you have this longer chain that gets snipped and broken down by the bacteria. And then that creates different things or opens up and makes other nutrients readily available. So a pollen substitute doesn't necessarily have that. 
No. And when it doesn't, then you add in some sort of pre or probiotic or both that goes through and, and allows the bees to then encounter these microorganisms that they normally would have encountered on a, a real flower in nature. And that's how our manufacturers make extra money because then all of a sudden you get the, the sugar substitute or the sugar water or the feed, bee feed, and it's got all of the antibiotics and the probiotics and the, and the biotics and the ultrabiotics and all that stuff in it also. And it's very expensive when you buy it from the store. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I started using what you told me and mixing it with it and seems to work fine. So I, your I mix that, I mix that in, uh, both the spring and the fall. So anytime okay. I'm going out there and putting it in and that's, that is not how it's intended to be used. By the way, the mm. directions on the bag of the probiotic is that you're supposed to sprinkle it on top of the frames of your hive, mm. right? You're supposed to go mm. through and sprinkle the dusting and stuff on there. But what if you have a top bar? You can't do that. You can't mm. sprinkle it on top of the bars because the bees won't ever get to it. You know, the bars create a solid roof. And when you mm -hmm. sprinkle it on top of the frames, the bees are supposed to come out and, and as they try to clean it up, thereby they end up ingesting parts of it and it ends up, you know, getting into their system and therefore you help them out. But I did what I started doing. I did it because of thinking about how things work in nature. And if I've got a pollen powder that I'm going to be feeding as a substitute at crucial times of the year when there's not pollen available, and I've got a probiotic that is a powder, then... I can mix it together so that as I go through and I put it out there, it's actually going to be found like it would normally in nature. They're going to go out and mm -hmm. search for the protein. And as they get the protein, they're going to be bringing back these microorganisms and pre and probiotics that they need with the protein, just like they would have in nature. So that's why mm -hmm. I came up with that. And it seems to work really well. And then I'm not, time. yeah. And then I'm not forcing a ton of this, into a colony that maybe didn't want it or didn't need it, you know, um, I'm allowing them to go and search for what they need and to bring that back in. So I know all of my bees, when we started feeding pollen a little bit first of the year, oh, they went crazy. Uh, they are, uh, they got a lot to brood and they're getting some big numbers of bees. Now I'm going to check some of them because I think I've got some mite problems. But other than that, everything's wonderful up here. Uh, Max says, oh, Max says, dad, you got a couple of, uh, bunches we need to split. I says, no, I don't think I want to split them. John says we need to have, cause if we split them, we won't get honey off of either colony this year. It'll be next year before we get honey. So we need to let those get big and then we get honey. He says, well, okay. He says, I'm splitting some of mine. I says, okay. He says, you can just buy mine instead of packages. I says, okay, that'll work. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's what you actually said. I <laughs> know no, it ain't. <laughs> no, it ain't. But it is. But it could have been. It, it was in that kind of a frame of mind. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because he, he sent me that message and he told me, well, what if I, because I kind of want to do this and I kind of want to do that. You know, like, what should I do? And I said, well, if you've got a lot of colonies, you can go ahead and you can do, you know, both. So if, and, and he has more than this, but hypothetically, the scenario I used with him was say you have four really strong colonies, but you also want to make 
you want to double your number and you want to have eight colonies total. Well, if there are four really strong colonies, what you could actually end up doing is you could take those three and continue growing them to build as much comb as they can and, mm -hmm. and, you know, potentially bring in as much nectar as they can and have as big of a honey harvest from those three colonies as you can get. And then you're going to get a good deal of honey. And if it's a, if it's an average year, you're talking hopefully around an average of 80 to a hundred pounds of honey per each of those colonies. And then that fourth colony that is really big and strong if it is super strong and it's got plenty of resources in it, you could, in theory, break that up into four splits. So you could completely destroy the bigger colony and make, you know, two, three, four, maybe even five <laughs> small nucleuses out of it. <laughs> and by doing that, you've gone from four colonies to now you've got, we'll see, you'd have your three. And then if you take four out of that, so now you got seven colonies. So you're one shy of, of completely doubling it potentially right and you've still increased your numbers you only sacrificed one colony and one honey harvest to do it instead of splitting from each of the colonies and taking resources from all of them um, another thing that you can do though is say you were worried about the colony potentially you know swarming well that's not necessarily an issue i mean it is and it isn't right you do more harm and take more resources from a colony by doing a true 50-50 split than you do by letting them swarm. If they swarm like they would in nature, yes, they do take some resources and yes, they take a huge population of bees. But if the colony is strong and they've got wall-to-wall -wall frames of solid capped brood, you know, we remember we talked about a single deep frame completely covered in brood on both sides is nine to 10,000 bees which is equal to oh, or more gosh. than, yeah, that's equal to or more than what you get in a package of bees. So one frame of solid capped developing brood is equal to a package of bees. And if you've got a whole colony that's full of those bees in there and you have a swarm that takes, say, 50 to 75% of your adult population, yes, it does stunt it back for a little bit. And there's going to be a little bit of a lag in there on the new queen going out and mating and everything else. But all of that capped brood then immediately hatches out and you now have a minimum of 30,000 bees or more already still back in your colony. But they didn't lose any comb. And they yes, they lost some resources, but they didn't lose all of it. They're not going to wipe mm -hmm. out a honey super when the swarm leaves and goes, you know, mm -hmm. so so that colony can can more easily rebound than what it makes it sound like when you read some of the books and they're like, Oh my God, don't let your colony swarm. But if you do a split, you're guaranteed that it's going to be stunted because they have to draw a new comb, which means they have to use all their nectar sources to convert it over into wax. And that's why you're not going to end up getting as much of a honey harvest as you would with a colony that already has the drawn wax. It's that wax production that takes away the biggest portion of your, your resources. And that's also why your second year and your third year, you get a much larger honey harvest than you do in your first year, because the first year and part of the second year, every bit of excess resource is going to creating and building wax. So allowing them to swarm is, is not, it's not the end of the world, right? Now there are some instances, just like anything else in beekeeping, where if they do swarm, something could go wrong. And a lot of times that has to do with the queen. By the time the colony does leave, 
the queen herself, the mother queen that was in there has stopped laying eggs usually three to four days before they leave, which means by the time she does leave, and especially by the time the first virgin queen emerges, there's usually not any eggs or larvae of the right age to create a new queen. So that means the virgin queen that comes out is their only shot. And she murders all the other potential shots. And then she goes on her nuptial flights. We'll say something eats her. Well, then they're screwed. There's not going to be a queen coming back. And there's no way for them to raise a new queen because there's no eggs and larvae at the right age. Say she comes back, but she gets confused and she goes to a colony directly beside the one she's supposed to be in. Best case scenario, you wind up with a colony that for a little while has two queens. And if you happen to go through and do your inspections like you should be, and you catch that and you catch the fact that one doesn't have a queen and the one beside it has two, you can split them back up and put the queen back where she's supposed to go. But if you don't catch it, eventually nature's going to take its course. They're going to balance that out. And one of those two queens is going to die. And then they'll be back to just one queen. So if you can go through and mitigate the swarm urge and continue keeping them building comb by adding in empty frames and key places and keeping the colony growing, you can have a monster colony that will go through and give you a monster hunting harvest. I've got one colony. Well, I've got several colonies, but one, the, the one that we moved out of the two, two deeps into the long lane, when we did that, it had so no, it had six full frames of brood and a seventh partial. And I'm sitting here nine to 10,000 bee, bees per frame. So we're looking at 50, 60,000 bees. And then she's probably, since we moved her into that and even bigger. And I put a little, no, I think all that, they're going to have to draw that those uh frames because i put them all into uh acorn deeps and uh but it's there they were triple wax so they can make wax pretty easy out of that so yeah uh that colony's gonna be big real quick <laughs> well the one thing to keep in mind also is that you are still losing bees every oh, yeah. day every hour of every day you know your your mortality rate depending on the time of year can easily be a thousand bees a day. And so that's why the queen can lay as many eggs as she does every single day. She's got to keep up with that mortality rate. So mm -hmm. while yes, you might end up with 60,000 bees emerging. That's not to say that as they turn into foragers and they leave to go out on their forage trips on that, you know, third week of their life that two to 3000 of them don't immediately get wiped out in one day because they're yep. in a place where it gets sprayed or, you know, they, they get hit by traffic that's going back and forth on a nearby roadway that's a high traffic area, you know, or, or other critters out there don't gobble them up. Um, and then if they do make it, they only live for another three weeks maximum at that forager level because of the, all of the strenuous work and the continuous flying that they're doing. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's always a big mortality rate and turnover. So that's that's not to say that, yeah, you're going to have this monster colony of 60,000 bees and then she's going to lay another one and now your colony is going to be 120,000 bees. That's never going to happen because nature does balance that out. And 60,000 at the peak of the year is usually as big as it gets um, in, okay. in nature that I have ever heard of that was legitimately confirmed and not people just making shit up. 
90,000 is the maximum that I've ever heard of in a natural setting from a colony. And that's that. Um, and you can sometimes pull that off by doing some things that we might talk about here in an upcoming episode in April, but doing things like a double queen system where you're combining the forage force of two colonies into one. So in that instance, you could have, you know, potentially up to 120,000 bees at the peak of the year if you did the two queen system in a specific way where it allowed for that. If you don't, then you're going to still have, you know, closer to the 60 to 90,000 range. But that is an artificially populated colony. That's not something they did on their own. That is a manipulation that the beekeeper did to create that massive size of a forage force. So there are always, again, exceptions and contradictions. That's, you know, that's beekeeping. That's just how it is. And it looks like we will be doing one of those uh, in a 10 frame. Max, he's got one bunch and uh, he says, Dad, we're going to do a double a two queen system. I've been listening and studying and we're going to do that. And I said, okay, sounds good to me. It'd be something to talk about. Yeah. I've got one that we're going to, we're going to set up and we're going to do, um, at the main apiary. So, so yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in April. Um, cause for right now it is for a lot of the country, it is still a little bit too early to be doing some of these manipulations and stuff. But one of the other things that we will talk about, and we'll, we'll talk about this one, Mm, coming up here pretty soon. I don't know if we'll do it the very first week of April or if it'll be one of the subsequent weeks of April, but we'll also talk about doing resource colonies, um, creating a nuke specifically for a resource colony so that you can use it to help bolster other colonies. And it can also be used as a, you know, swarm preventative method as well. So we'll get into that here in another week or two and we'll go through and talk about that. Okay. Then that's, what I have read, the I call them double nukes, and you'll say no, it's not a double nuke box. What is it? It's a ten frame box made to where you can have two four frame nukes, and and you can stack them if you want to. Yeah, I mean, it's and, technically uh, it's it's a double nuke box that that fits yep. because it's it's two nukes in one box, so yep. it's a double nuke box. That was what we were going to talk about today, but you started off on this pollen kick. And we managed, we managed to get 30 minutes of talk in there that didn't have anything to do with the topic. So we're going to use that as the episode. And then, okay. uh, and then we're going to go with uh, the switch for the other. So, <laughs> so we started off this episode talking about protein and pollen and everything for the bees, which is obviously, you know, one of their main food sources and the nectar mm -hmm. coming available. And uh, it is the fourth week of the month it's the last week of the month so i think mm -hmm. it's time for us to talk about food for the people well more of a sauce it's not really a food it's an uh what do you want to call it it's a condiment for your barbecues what i'm gonna have is a barbecue sauce recipe it's time to see what sticky situations Ken can get himself into while combining that golden honey goodness into his sweet and savory creations. Welcome to Ken's Cooking Corner. Okay, what is now the barbecue sauce that I've come up with? Now it's a regular, it's a recipe I found in one of my old barbecue books, and then I kind of tweaked it. It's a molasses barbecue sauce that I said, well, you know, molasses and buckwheat honey are a lot the same. To me, they are. 
and uh, you know they both have that strong flavor and john's sitting there making a face because buckwheat honey to him tastes like urine and <laughs> and molasses is specifically dark. cat pee ammonia yeah, yeah. not yeah. any urine it is a specific <laughs> urine <laughs> and but molasses a lot of people like molasses a lot of people hate molasses either you, there's no in between either you like it or you don't like it and personally i like molasses and the uh, buckwheat honey hell no i couldn't do nothing with that and i got about six pounds so i got one bell deal i found a guy that liked it so i gave him most of it I, I kept two pounds just to play with now here's the recipe get you a piece of paper and you can always go back on podcast and listen to it again okay the recipe i want you to start out with one cup of ketchup now you can use ketchup or ketchup <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Uh, then I want you to have a cup of white vinegar. Then I want you to use, now this is where you can either use a buckwheat honey or you can use a dark fall honey. This is where you're going to use the molasses. Now it's, it's at half a cup of molasses. I cut it down to a quarter cup of the buckwheat honey. And I think if you use the dark fall honey, you could probably use a half a cup. Now it's going to be sweet there. Now a half a cup of honey, just plain honey, just a, um, spring mix summer blend. That's what I want to use. Okay. Then now we're going to, now I did not, I do not use liquid smoke. Now if you're going to be cooking it in the oven, I'd say, yes, put liquid smoke in it. I put cook all of my barbecue on a pit. Okay. Now, and here, if you're using liquid smoke and you're cooking in the oven, use one teaspoon of liquid smoke, a half a teaspoon of salt, a quarter teaspoon of garlic powder. I use two cloves of garlic minced, and I, what I like to use fresh. I don't like to use the powder. I use two cloves of garlic. Then I put a quarter teaspoon. I used a half a teaspoon of onion powder. Then I used, you can change this up if you like a spicy barbecue sauce. The recipe calls for a teaspoon of Tabasco sauce. No, a quarter teaspoon of Tabasco sauce. If you like it spicy, possibly put a half. Uh, Tabasco is hot. Uh, I didn't use Tabasco. I used one of the other. I think Louisiana sauce, Louisiana hot sauce. It's not as hot as Tabasco. Then I use, now this is something I like. I like mustard. So I put a tablespoon of prepared yellow French's mustard in it. Then in a small disc pan, a small saucepan, you want to mix all the ingredients, whisk them together quite well. Now, if you're cooking it in the house, in the oven, you'll put it on the stove, bring it to a rapid boil, then reduce heat till it's just a slow simmer. And you want to simmer it, oh, 30 minutes or so. And then what you'll do is start watching it. If you like a thick sauce, cook it a little longer. You're going to have to keep it stirred, though. And what I do is I put it in a saucepan. I put it in my barbecue pit. That's why I don't use liquid smoke. I put it in my barbecue pit when I'm cooking the meat and let it sit there and simmer 
in the smoke. The smoke, I use the, uh, you know, the smoke that you're smoking your meat with to smoke my barbecue sauce. So that's what I do instead of using liquid smoke. And bring it down, you sit there and simmer it. Uh, if it gets too thick, you can always put a little more water or you can put a little more vinegar in it and barbecue, you, you know, cook your meat. And I guarantee tell you, you'll like it. It's good. Uh, one thing about my recipes, I always like to leave it where people can change it to their, their taste. Uh, also, also, whoa, whoa, put just a, like a half a teaspoon of paprika i like a little that taste i like and it's a smoked paprika that i used uh, i put a little paprika in it and i i use some other spices just to kind of spice it up a little bit but make it to your taste that's a good base then make it the way you want to like it, that you like it you can put it in the ice box or your refrigerator to keep if you don't use it all you can even put it in a container and freeze it and it stays good. So y'all try it out. Let us know how it works, how you like it. Now, what I want from our family is I want a good South Carolina mustard golden recipe for barbecue. They're going to have to send it to John. <laughs> well, send it. There you go, John. Send it into the Hive Jive, and yep. uh, somebody, myself or whomever, will get it routed over to Ken. So um, that is info at thehivejive.com is the email address. And you can send that in. Or if you have suggestions for future cooking corners that you would yeah. like to see how Ken would come up with a, a recipe for something specific that you would be interested in. Feel free to shoot those over as well, and we will put them on the list, and he can go through and start working on some concepts and ideas there for you. Yep. Uh, I've been thinking, what am I going to do for for next month? Uh, I'll have to do some thinking. I know one of them I'm going to come up with a mead recipe, but I figure once it starts getting fermented, the more I taste, the less I remember, and I don't know. I'll have to write it all down. Yeah. One of these days we, we will actually do a episode dedicated to mead. Uh, mead's not technically cooking, so I don't know that that qualifies. (laughs) Well, I don't know. You know, if you're using, if you're making, you know why you use white wine or vodka in your cooking? Uh, it's usually something that is so, so strong or fermented that you wouldn't want to drink it. Yes. But also you use it to take the flavor off of the pan, you know, where you have browned your meat, you take your meat off and, or, or you have, uh, browned your flour and made your roux. You'll mix the, the wine or your vodka or whatever with that. The alcohol evaporates almost instantly. You would, all you have is the flavor of the liquor of the alcohol, you know, whatever you put, carry the alcohol in but what it does it releases the flavors off of the pan where it had seared and stuck to your pan that's why you use uh uh your alcohol based you know wine or vodka or something like that well there you go folks another interesting little tidbit there for everybody so well um i hope you have enjoyed this episode and uh hopefully your march is 
has been decent to you. And if not, hopefully April will be better because April is just around the corner. And that means bigger and brighter things for the colonies and the beekeepers alike. So hopefully everybody out there is well and healthy and stays that way. And we will talk to you next week. Y'all be happy, be safe, get your vaccinations. They're here in the United States, Texas. Oh, I am taking my second one. Oh, and y'all hear this. I'll have had my second one and I'll tell you all about it then. You're taking your second one today. I'm taking it today at nine o'clock. I'm taking my second one today at nine o'clock. So by every time everybody hears this, I will be almost fully vaccinated after two, two, three weeks. That's when you're really COVID free, I guess (laughs) we'll find out. I'm thinking still wearing a mask though. Well, you're supposed to, even after you get your vaccination, you're supposed to still continue wearing your mask. So everybody out there, definitely go get vaccinated, do your part to help out, help, you know, build the herd immunity and help everybody else stay healthy. Because a lot of times, just like wearing the mask, a lot of times it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with you. It has to do with thinking outside of yourself, just like you would in a bee colony and doing what is good for the rest of the population. You don't want to, potentially endanger anybody that is in the senior community that may be a relative to you or a relative to somebody else and you be responsible for that person then getting sick and, and whatnot. So, you know, it's just a face covering. It's not that big of a deal. There's tons of them out there now with all kinds of designs and decorations so you can express yourself. But yes, just because you get your shots doesn't mean that you can just stop. Um, so definitely keep doing your part on that as well. So anyhow, everybody, Y'all be safe, be healthy, and wear the mask, family. Be good. We'll talk to you here probably in a few days again. See y'all later. The show might be over for now, but the sting won't last long. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our podcast as we'll be swarming in with new episodes Mondays of each month. Until then, behave yourselves. <laughs>